0: Welcome to the St Emlins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And we join you from a very autumnal UK. The weather has most certainly changed. Simon has got what looks like a coat on, despite the fact he's sitting inside, but he did remind me he is up north. And so it's obviously more chilly than those of us in the balmy south. But this is to talk a bit about some summertime papers and blog posts from August. Uh, Simon, how was your summer? Um, it's been quite good, actually. We Obviously, haven't been very many places because of the
1: whole COVID thing going on. But no, it's been really nice. Spent time in the garden, growing things in the greenhouse. We picked the
0: cucamelons uh, yesterday. It was quite good fun. Lots of tomatoes. Yeah, it's been nice. We are getting old, aren't we? But it turns <laughs> out that cucamelons is as exciting as it gets. But we've been uh, having a rather nice weather here in the UK. And hopefully people have had a chance for a break. Uh, Simon and I are both very aware that emergency medicine across the world is having trying times and we wanted to bring you, although what will be a short podcast, because there's been a bit of a summer hiatus on our blog posts, uh, some cheery noises to try and cheer you along in your emergency medicine. Simon, let's just have a quick look at the blog posts. As I say, not too many, because the team do take a bit of a break in August, but still there's stuff going on. There's always things to talk about. And the first post is from our resident, I don't think you'd mind me saying, VTE expert, Professor Dan Horner, about thromboprophylaxis for the non-ICU hospitalised COVID-19 patient. And I have say I have seen a few patients with quite nasty COVID in the last ooh, few shifts I've done. And you know, dare I say they're the unvaccinated patients. Please do get your vaccines. But anyway, thromboprophylaxis.
1: Yeah, so we did a paper, um, we discussed this actually a few months ago, because there was a preprint of a paper from the same group looking at prophylaxis on ICU patients. And they showed in the ICU patients that there was no real benefit from full anticoagulation against your normal thromboprophylaxis sort of regimes. And there was a hint back then, I think we mentioned it on the podcast, that there was another group of patients, the ward-based patients requiring oxygen, who actually showed a benefit but there was just one slide on a presentation we didn't have the data well now we've got it it's now published and so this is a, a large trial it's a combination of three trials the remap cap trial the attack covid trial and the active four trial they've pooled information from there in these trials they all randomised to either your standard low molecular weight heparin usually prophylaxis or onto full treatment dose um, anticoagulation and had a look at the patients, and it was really interesting. They looked at this group of patients. There's about 2,219 patients in the trial, I think. And they looked at whether they were still on organ support at 21 days, arguably a bit too soon. And maybe you could do look at some different things, but you know, we'll live with it. Um, and interestingly, what they found is a quite a big difference, actually. So if you're on your usual dose, survival was 76.4%. So that's your normal thromboprophylaxis. But if you went on to full dose anticoagulation, it went up to 80.2%. And that's very significant. And they also did some really clever Bayesian statistics, which I pretend to understand, which demonstrated that they were 98% certain that there is truly a benefit from full dose anticoagulation
0: in this group of agents. So that's really quite interesting, I think. Just to be clear, this is the group who have coronavirus, COVID-19, and come in and are inpatients, but don't have proven clots that we're treating. Because we often do worry, don't we, that I had a patient just recently, this is the hypoxic patient, who may or may not have a positive COVID test, who you're thinking, do they have a PE? But these are patients we we know have COVID, We haven't investigated necessarily for a PE and we're giving them full anticoagulation. Did D-dimers make any difference? Everyone talked a lot about the old friend, the D-dimer. And we talked, again,
1: we talked about that on previous podcasts, that people were using prior to these trials. D-dimers is an indicator about what sort of level of of anticoagulation you're going to do. And actually there is a signal in this study as well, that the higher your D-dimers, the more likely you are to get benefit from full dose anticoagulation. So maybe those people were right. Um, although now we have the evidence to support that, and of course you're right. If if we know somebody's got a PE, then you're going to treat that as a full dose anticoagulation,
0: assuming that you can. But I guess also this does take away a little bit of that diagnostic uncertainty because if we're saying we're going to give all our patients who have COVID and are admitted therapeutic dose anticoagulation. Well, there's no rush to try and get these hypoxic patients through a CT scanner to try and prove they've got a PE, is there? We can just give them the treatment. We're going to give them benefit from the COVID and we're going to be covering them if there is a concurrent PE at the same time. Well, that seems logical, but I think Dan on the blog has put a couple of
1: cautions in here as well, because this all sounds, as you say, absolutely great when you get into the nitty gritty of how difficult it is to do this and the you know in certain health economies at the moment large numbers of patients coming through and achieving safe full anticoagulation in that group of patients is quite complicated and also taking a balanced view about whether or not these patients are the right ones on an individual basis on their risks and benefits and possible um, adverse events that could come with full anticoagulation whether they're the right ones to do although this could appear to be quite simple let's just anticoagulate everybody i think the practicalities of this are going to be quite difficult and I I had a look at some of the national guidance in the UK at the moment and it's still not totally adopted this it's sort of suggesting that they go for full dose I think for young patients who are uh, oxygen dependent but so they are taking account of those perhaps increased risks of full anticoagulation as you get older and you acquire some more comorbidities so yeah I think there's still quite a lot of clinical judgment in this one um, and one for a, a little bit of a challenge for our inpatient medical
0: colleagues. But in the emergency department, if you do have a patient, and as I say, I've had a couple recently who come in and you confirm they have COVID in whatever way you do, and they're hypoxic and they're being admitted. Maybe that suggestion to the inpatient team, or oh, do you think we should consider full dose anticoagulation? will just get them ticking over because... Uh, Sadly, for our acute care colleagues, they don't necessarily have the massive FOMED resources that we're all lucky to benefit from. Gentle nudge, maybe that will help get your patients the best care they can have. Let's just talk about a second blog post because it's on the same, unsurprisingly, Simon, still more COVID. And this is about non-invasive ventilation from recovery. So non-invasive ventilation, from what I remember, and I have to say, it's very interesting how soon we forget, isn't it? So we had a bit of a lull with not many COVID patients at all. And I knew a lot about this about eight months ago. And now it feels like I've just forgotten it all. Trying to remember the name of Toxalutumab the other day. Couldn't do it. Anyway, a bit of refresher. So NIV for COVID-19. Good thing? Well.
1: Yes, is the, the headline answer. We could just stop there. But it depends on what sort you're talking about. So this is the recovery RS, the resp- respiratory support arm of the recovery trial, which we've talked about loads on the blog and the podcast before. And what they did in this group is they is a randomized control trial comparing standard of care, um, is it normal face mass oxygen versus um, high flow nasal oxygen versus CPAP. And this is in patients who uh, were admitted to hospital with respiratory failure as defined by an oxygen saturation of less than 95 on 40% FiO2. So reasonably sick, actually. This was really interesting because there was a lot of controversy around non-invasive ventilation at the beginning. You know, Did it make a difference? And we certainly spoke to our colleagues, didn't we, Uh, Roberto, over in Italy right back in March, the beginning of the pandemic, and they were using it a lot. And we weren't using it much in the UK because it was considered to be an aerosol generating procedure, which it still is. And there were concerns that it would spread around other patients, the wards and staff, et cetera, et cetera, um, all of which are completely valid concerns we really did kind of need to know whether this made a difference. Um, And the other thing we saw a lot of locally, and I think around the world, is the use of high flow nasal oxygen, partly because actually we didn't have enough machines to to deliver the CPAP in in certain um, times, but we did have HFNO machines. Anyway, randomized control trial, comparing the three things, and they're looking at an outcome of whether you're dead or on invasive ventilation at 30 days. And that's fine. So headline figures mortality-wise, if you had the standard of care, 45% died. High flow nasal oxygen, 44.4%. CPAP, 36.3%. So really quite a dramatic difference. Basically, I mean, tells us what I think most people were doing. And actually, this trial didn't reach its target number because people, because actually people just started using it because they realized that it was so effective. But this is good evidence that what we thought we were doing right is correct. What's interesting is that high flow nasal oxygen doesn't have that much of an effect. And that was quite controversial on Twitter. There are so it's clearly a lot of people out there who still
0: rate this as a as a therapeutic option. This is a sick group, isn't it? At least a third of them dying, up to almost half of them dying. We're talking about sick patients. We've got to remember, COVID is still there, and we're still getting poorly, poorly people. And it does sound like yeah, the high flow nasal option, which I must admit I've not seen used in my emergency department anyway, doesn't seem necessarily to be the way to go. And NIV, if you can, get hold of the machines and you have them available. And of course, that's such a problem. And in the UK at the moment, we're seeing a bit of a drop-off in our truly sick patients. Our ITs are not as overwhelmed as they once were, but I'm mindful that listeners across the world will still be right in the peak of this, where they're having to rationalise oxygen use, they're having to rationalise the number of machines that they've got. And so high-flow nasal oxygen may well be the option that they choose because of equipment. But from this trial, and we can't say enough that we think the recovery trial is a good thing, it seems that NIV is the way to go. So from August, it seems there's a suggestion that therapeutic anticoagulation, non-invasive ventilation for the sick patients are the good ones. Yeah. And just to add on that, one of the conversations that did come
1: out of Twitter about that trial was high flow nasal oxygen can still be used for patients who need to take a break from the CPAP or for other reasons. So I think we'll still see it used, but not as the main modality.
0: So that's our COVID-19 update for August and just one other blog post to talk about from the month, but really important. And this is about our next generation of consultants. It's about our trainees. It's about how we look after them. It's about how we teach them. It's about how we train them. And this is from the EMTA survey. Now the EMTA in the UK is the Emergency Medicine Trainees Association. And this is the survey that they send out every year. And this is the results from the 2020 survey. And I know, Simon, you've a lot to do with teaching and training, both at deanery level and GMC level. And I'm a college tutor in Southampton. So we do have a lot of involvement with trainees. Did you find this a positive read or there's still work to be done? <laughs> there's plenty of work to be done. Is it a positive read? Yes, because it's always good to get information out there. And
1: we see a lot of surveys applied. And you know you can get survey fatigue, particularly if you're a trainee these days. But actually, this is an important one because it is exactly the group of people who we're trying to develop into emergency physicians of the future. And perhaps it tells us a little bit more about their experience. So there's lots of information on here. You should go and have a look at it. But there's a couple of headline stuff that I thought would be really interesting. One is that only 28 percent, so let's call it a third of uh, trainees, plan on being full time when they qualify, which is interesting because that could give us quite significant staffing issues in the future. A lot of people felt that they weren't getting enough exposure to pediatrics to feel that they were confident managing pediatric emergencies, and that's a great debate about why that's happened and the development of pediatric emergency medicine as a subspecialty. One in five get really tired, they're unsafe to drive home. But the one that sort of flagged out for me on the negatives, before I talk about the positives, was that the ST3 is really bad, and um, it's a really tough year for them, and there's quite a lot of bullying and harassment still going on a little bit unclear from this about where it's coming from i think it's multifactorial that you know you're working people pretty hard and um, they're quite stressed they're tired
0: um they're not necessarily getting the preparation they need there's a lot of work to be done here ian ST3 or CT3 is the killer year, isn't it? It's the one between, we're just introducing you to the specialties, six months here, six months there, and you're about to transition into being a highly specialist trainee, which could mean being the most senior doctor overnight in a department. And it's the year in between where you're expected to expand on your paediatric knowledge. There's an awful lot of curriculum requirements. You've got to make sure your exams are done. And I do think CT3 is a time we've got to properly make sure we look after, oh, well, we have to look after all our trainees, but that's one to be particularly aware of. Often they're moving between departments because they'll spend some time in a children's emergency department and then in an adult department. So lots to do, lots to think about. I don't think that the people working less than full-time is an issue as much. I mean, it, as bums on seats go, I think managers will worry. But for me, I know that I've been at my most healthy when I've been working, well, less than full-time in my emergency department, but adding in a portfolio of doing pre-hospital care. I bring more enthusiasm, I would hope, to my both departments, whether that's in the air base or whether that's at the hospital. And I'm still working full-time. I'm a full-time doctor, but it's less than full-time in emergency medicine. And I think that is the way forward. And many of the St Emlyn's team have that sort of portfolio career. And I think it's one that we would encourage people to uh, to investigate and try and develop as early as possible.
1: I completely agree. And that's how I've w- worked my career. My concern, though, is have we got a training program that is so tough for so many people that they have to work part-time in emergency medicine. So you and I have chosen to do so. But my worry is that certain times and certain places and certain times of life, it means that actually people are doing this because they have to. And I can't think of any other specialty. And this is what people have told me. I can't think of any other specialty where people have said the work is so intense and so frequent that I have to go part-time. So that's my concern. And I don't think the survey
0: necessarily tells us exactly that, but that's, yeah, that's my worry. Well, there was a tacit acknowledgement of exactly what you just said, wasn't there, by emergency medicine being one of the first specialties where you could opt to work less than full time without giving a reason. You could just say, I want to train less than full time. And that in itself is, dare I say, it's slightly damning because what we're really admitting there is, you know what, we know that this is tough and therefore we're going to say you can just work less than full time if you want. As opposed to the old reasons where you kind of had to be an Olympic rower or having a baby or, you know, one of the other highly physical activities that we subject ourselves to. So there is still most certainly work to do. And as consultants, I think it's our, we are beholden to make sure that we look after our trainees as best we can. We have to be realistic about the, what the job is for the future and just maintain some balance about what this job really is about. Yeah, and the positive I was going to put at the end of that um, fits with that. It's quite good
1: to hear that many people on the survey thought that they were getting good help from their educational supervisors. So it sounds as if um, around the country, the consultants are doing what you're saying, Ian, and that's a positive and we should
0: continue to do so. I must say i 'm very positive the group of trainees that I've had coming through Southampton with us over the last few years have been superb and really enjoyed working with them, undoubtedly can imagine them as colleagues, and that in the end, of course, is what we're looking for isn't it to to train people who we want to work with, and I'm pretty picky. I want to work with people who are pretty good, so uh, they're clearly meeting a meeting a standard that Simon is it for August. We very much had a bit of a break, didn't we? But there's more for September. and Because, dare I say, we took a bit of a a hiatus in bringing this podcast out. It will not be long, will it, Simon, before we do September's podcast, which happens in October after we've published August's podcast in the middle of September, if you know what I mean. It'll all make perfect sense.
1: A lot of other things going on as well, though. So it's a busy few months. There's Um, lots happening. Yeah, so the Archem conference coming up, that's going to be good. Um, that's going to be virtual again, so uh, book onto that if you can. Um is going to be a face-to-face conference in Lisbon and I think a few of the team are going to try and make it out there to to take part in that. Oh, and I also did um I did a really good course in the last month, the pre-hospital emergency anaesthesia course up with the Great North Air Ambulance. Strongly recommend it and and actually if you can get a place, because it's really difficult to get a place, even if you don't necessarily do pre-hospital care, you just do emergency anaesthesia in resus. There are so many lessons from that course
0: that we can bring into the resus room. So yeah, highly recommend. It's been fascinating watching you, Simon, over the last year. Some people go out and they buy a Ferrari. Other people go off and they have a girlfriend. Other people manage their midlife crisis by doing pre-hospital emergency medicine. I'm having a lot of fun and learning a lot. It's been lovely chatting, Simon, as ever. We will be back soon. I promise, promise, promise with a September update. Please just keep keep a smile on your face if you can. Uh, remain a balance. It is still the best specialty. It's the one that truly means that if you're on a plane and somebody said, is there a doctor on board? You'd be able to put your hand up and know that you were able to help persevere with your training and uh, keep uh, enjoying your emergency medicine and take care of yourselves. Have fun, folks.